With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another Podlet live from New York. I say live, of course it's not live, it's the whole point of podcasting. But uh, I am in New York and I am alive, which is something I think we can all be thankful for one way or another. I appreciate I owe you lots of content and lots of news. Um, I'm going to start with what took place today. I'm recording this late, late on Monday night New York time, which actually by the time I record this and certainly by the time you listen to it, most of you will have got up on Tuesday. It would be hard for you to listen to it without having got up. Anyway, point is, it's very late here, and Marin Cilic and Carlos Alcaraz have still not finished. And in fact, as we speak, it looks like they're going to five sets. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a tennis match that goes into a fifth set at quarter to two in the morning. Somehow it doesn't seem fair, but that is what is happening. Uh, let's start with what took place earlier today. I'm going to start with Rafa Nadal. I I actually want to apologise in advance for talking more about men's tennis in this podlet than maybe is equitable. But the reality is that over the last two days, having talked a lot about Serena last week and about the women's game, the last two days the men's draw has come alive really for the first time in the fortnight and it has dominated the agenda. And it is all anyone wants to talk to me about, so I thought I should talk about it as well. Um, I will talk about Sunday night's events in due course, but I'm going to start with the stuff that's freshest in my mind, which is what I've just witnessed, and that is Francis TFO beating Rafael Nadal in four sets to reach his first ever US Open quarterfinal, uh, only his second Grand Slam quarterfinal ever, and <clears throat> it's a great story. For people who don't know... Uh, Francis TFO's story. He, his parents were immigrants from Sierra Leone, and uh, his father, Francis Senior, as everyone calls him, I think his name technically is Constant, but uh, everyone knows him as Francis Senior, came over here and worked in construction uh, in Maryland uh, on, a, on a tennis centre. And when they finished, he started working at the tennis centre as a sort of security guard, and he ended up living at the centre and 
little Francis and his brother lived there for the next 11 years, as far as I can tell, and started having a hit and playing a bit of tennis and impressing the people who were coaching there. And the rest, as they say, is history. And all of a sudden, this kind of great immigrant story, and it's I think is really important to tell positive immigrant stories because... The media as a whole, and I know I'm part of the media, but I think other parts of the media tell a lot of negative immigrant stories. Um, this is an amazing one. Francis TFO is into the quarterfinal of his home Grand Slam. And let's not forget, his parents may have come here from Sierra Leone, but he is American, and proudly so. And the kind of most stereotypical American you can imagine in some ways. He, he was so delighted after he won to have been playing in front of his favourite basketball player, which is Bradley Beal, uh, who I believe plays for the Washington Wizards. Uh, the Washington Wizards are not very well liked, I believe, or at least don't have a lot of fans. Uh, if you are listening and you're a Washington Wizard fan, then tweet us at Love Tennis Pod. But I believe they're not the most popular team in basketball. Not because they're unpopular, just that no one goes to watch them. Uh, anyway, beside the point. Um, Francis TFO has now made a US Open quarterfinal can't take that away from him it's a pretty big deal he played made the fourth round the two, last two years running um so obviously he knows he can play here uh i think in 2020 he lost to medvedev and then last year he lost to felix Auger-Aliassime. so you know not losing to bad players the match against nadal was weird i, I think nadal served extremely poorly and i think he pretty much said as much he, he, in classic Nadal fashion, uh, my colleague Eleanor Crooks of the Press Association said, what made the difference out there? And he said, well, the difference is easy. I played a bad match, and he played a good match. At the end, that's it, no? Now, he went into more detail, of course, but I did think it sort of rather summed things up quite well that TFO probably played, you know, a 12 out of 10 match, and Nadal played an 8 out of 10 match and 12 beats 8 quite simply Nadal said my shot needs to be better my understanding of the game the quality of my shots were not good enough they were poor I have to say today because I was not able to create that much on him and it's true and and it was interesting because I was in TFO's press conference uh, after his last round and they started asking about Rafa of course and he said I've got to be aggressive and you know players almost always say that and he said, I've got to make sure that he has to play me, not me play him. And it did feel like that. Like, you weren't looking at what Nandar was doing and how TFO would deal with it, although there was some of that as well. But it was what TFO would do and how Nadal would deal with it. And the reality is he wasn't able to cope. And I think it's a huge, you know, it could this we could look back at this as a huge moment for Francis TFO for American tennis and for tennis as a whole because he would be I would love and I have talked about Francis Tiff a lot I've all, I've spoken to him a few times I've always liked the way he talks about tennis and the way he talks about his own game and the way he talks about other people the way he carries himself the way he enjoys being on a tennis court um, not to mention and I haven't yet all of his tennis skills you know, he played brilliantly today. His backhand was amazing. He serves massive, we know that. He moves brilliantly as well, and, and he is super athletic. There's no there's no denying that. But if he can start to win big matches on a regular basis, 
he could be a massive superstar for tennis as a whole because of everything that goes with his story. Because, I mean, let's not be around the bush here, because he's a black American, and with Serena Williams retiring, and, you know, people talk about the Tiger Woods effect in golf, and there actually hasn't been much of one. Golf is still a pretty white male and stale sport. Serena Williams has built up tennis to be a more diverse sport. And you only have to walk around the grounds at Flushing Meadows the nights that she played last week to know that there are more black people who feel that tennis is for them. And what's very important about that is not just that those people do feel that tennis is for them, but that they continue to have role models in the game and that the professional game continues to be a diverse kind of arena. And Francis Tiafoe can be part of that. Now, he's so much more than just a black tennis player. He is brilliant. He's a great talker. He's brilliant to watch. And he's just beaten Rafa Nadal. But I think it's one element that is very encouraging and very positive. Um, let's talk about Nadal himself a bit. He spoke relatively candidly, although I'm told he spoke with a bit more candor in the Spanish section of the press conference. And I don't speak Spanish. Um, I was talking to Tumani Carriol of The Guardian, who does, and he told me a few things that he said. But he certainly hinted at all the things he went on to say uh, in the Spanish section. Kind of most tellingly, he said, I've been practicing well the week before the tournament. But when the competition started, my level went down. That's the true. The classic Nadal is in there. That's the true. For some reason, I don't know. Mental issues in terms of a lot of things happened the last couple of months, maybe. And what people maybe don't know is that, well, they may well know that his wife, um, Shiska, as I believe she goes by, her name is Maria Francisca, but she shortens it to Shiska, beginning with an X. Um, and I apologise if I pronounced that wrong. She is pregnant with their first child, and she was taken into hospital uh, shortly before the US Open. Really, I think, just as a precautionary measure, and um, I, I don't know or want to speculate any further on the nature of that illness, because I don't think it's fair. I, you know, I think the fact that she's gone into hospital is reportable, but it's important to kind of limit maybe the amount of information we, we throw around about that. And I don't think the press has always been right in what they've done there but anyway that of course will affect you now clearly he still played the US Open so you know there was a commitment there but it would affect you mentally and I can see how he might have been distracted and a little less focused and you know he's going through this for the first time so he didn't know how he would necessarily react anyone who knows anyone who's if you've had children I haven't had children but many of my close family members have including my mother of course uh and both of my sisters have had two children and it, it the first time especially it's an incredibly stressful time and you can read all the books you want but it's so different when it happens to you and so i don't doubt that nadal's you know been through a stressful time and of course other people go through this but that doesn't make it untrue that nadal is going through this and that he may have been affected by it um he also said, quite interestingly, um, I need to go back home. Uh, I need to fix things, life. Then I don't know when I'm going to come back. I'm going to try to be mentally ready. Sorry, I'm going to try to be ready mentally. When I feel that I'll be ready to compete again, I'll be there. Now, he does often say this. and play, you know, He came into press very quickly after the feat. He was in the room in about 15 minutes. And 
often players say, oh, I don't know what I'm doing next. I've only just lost. I haven't really thought about it. But equally, most players know one way or another. Now, the next date in Nadal's diary, as far as I know, is the Labour Cup in London at the end of September. He is due to play alongside Federer and Djokovic and Murray. And, you know, it's going to be the sort of tennis social media event of the year. But, nevertheless, I'm not convinced, based on what he said there, that he'll be there. Now, you know, there are a few better environments to play in, in that one doesn't necessarily have to work that hard, because you might only play one singles match and one doubles match. I mean, I think he's going to play doubles with Federer if he's there. Um, I've certainly spoken to a few people who think that's almost certainly going to happen. So you can plan your schedule. You maybe only have to turn up a day or two before. It's a, it's a limited time in kind of event. So I can see that it would be easier than, you know, going to, I don't know, Shanghai and playing a nine-day tournament there. Or a bit seven-day for Rafa. But nevertheless, um, and actually Shanghai's not happening this year anyway. It's not the end of there. But I can see that the Labour Cup might drop off. And actually, Alex Koretcher, who knows Rafa very well, and he works for Eurosport as a pundit, and he said he can see Rafa playing maybe just two or three more tournaments this year. You would assume that one of them will be ATP World Tour Finals, where I think he is the only person guaranteed a place at the moment. Um, but what else he plays, especially given that he's kind of carrying at least one injury, you know, this abdominal tear, which he says, well, it's now healed, but he says still kind of bothers him a bit, and there's a few other... N- niggles as there always are with players I do wonder whether he might say well I'll play World Tour Finals and I might play one other tournament just to get warm but otherwise Australia is the next goal but we shall see but that that was my reading of, of what he said um, in other news today Cam Norrie was beaten in three very one-sided sets well two very one-sided sets and then a, a briefly even set in the third um Quite frankly, Cam played very badly, and I am a bit disappointed for him because he made thirty-six unforced errors, and that's kind of not Cam. I said, I said to him actually afterwards, I said that was a very uncam performance, wasn't it? And he sort of he he said, "Well, now Rublev played really well, and yeah, I did play brilliantly, but you know, I felt pretty good out there." Interestingly, he said he thought he was too relaxed, said he had too much chill, and didn't get himself going enough. And funny enough, the one time he did get himself going, and he played the best point of the match from his perspective, was just after he'd smashed a racket. And anyone who watches Cam Nori knows that he doesn't do that very often. So, yeah, interesting that that was the moment that he sort of seemed to, to turn it around. Um... Whether he learns from that, and he said that he would, I don't know. I, I mean, that might not mean smashing more rackets, but, uh, you know, it might mean maybe... I don't know. It, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what he takes away from that, because he he certainly did look flat, and... You sort of wanted him to start geeing up the crowd a bit. I think the crowd are really up for it. When he did play that great point, he 
he really seemed to to, to get to understand what he was doing. But I don't know. I, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of fascinating, really, um, because most people think Kamnari isn't good enough to be at the level he's at. But he he is, and therefore he is good enough. And the proof in the pudding will be whether he can beat top 10 players at Grand Slams. And I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying he's yet to do that. So, you know, what does he have to do to lift, to lift that? Maybe it's understanding when he's in those ruts and those difficult moments and understanding how to get himself out of them. Uh, what else do we have to do? We had Yannick Sinner going five sets with Ilya Ivashka, whose run at the US Open is finally over. I mean, Sinner got over the line in three hours, 48 minutes. Uh, he was never behind in the match, if that makes sense, because he took the first set and then lost the second. He took the third set and then lost the fourth and uh, eventually triumphed in five sets. Um it was a pretty ding dong match. I think there were there were definitely double figures breaks of serve, but I'm not quite sure. Here we go. Eight plus twelve. I mean, is that twenty breaks of serve? I believe, which is pretty wild, even in a five set match. Um, to the extent that I'm having to like double check that stat by going through it game by game, and yeah, I think that. That is right. Um, Yannick Sinner needs to start winning those matches in straight sets again like he used to because he is going to go into a quarterfinal with a lot of sets under his belt that the best players in the world do not have under their belt. He played five sets in the first round, he played four sets in the third round and now five in the fourth. And when he plays either Chilich or Alcaraz, who, as I say, are in a fifth set, well... Yeah, they might not be as fresh. But, nevertheless, you know, Sinner would like to have a lot more on his legs than however many extra sets that is. He, he, should, he, he would look at those opponents and probably think I should have beaten them more in straight sets. Daniel Altmaier should not be taking me to five sets. Ilya Vashka should not be taking me to five sets. So, you know. Um, just to fill you in the other results from today, uh, Jess Pagula beat Petra Vitova. She's in straight sets. She's through to the quarterfinals, along with Arena Savalenka, who needed all three to beat Daniel Collins. Um, Karolina Pliskova came through a very tight one with Victoria Azarenka. Uh, she lost the first set, and the second went to a tiebreak, um, in which she actually led 6-2 and spurned four set points, but did eventually... Um, Sorry, that's an alarm reminding me to do this podcast. So, good one. I won't edit that out because, as you know, these are raw and uh, <laughs> you, you get everything that you... Um, you get everything. <laughs> you, you get all of it. Even me losing my train of thought because the alarm reminding you to do something I'm currently doing uh, has gone off. Oh, what else? Oh, Igor Shrontek, Jules Niemeyer. I wanted to talk about this match very briefly. Um, world number one, Iyash Rontek, has not been perfect. She dropped the first set, 6-2, to the world number 108, Jules Niemeyer, who has one of the biggest serves in the game. I think she hit the second fastest serve in the entire tournament at French Open. Even though I'm not convinced she played main draw. Um, I think she may just have played qualifying. But uh, she's a dangerous player, and she took the first set, 
and then got herself uh, a breakup in the second as well. And just her level completely abandoned her. But for those first, what, 11 games, she looked a really like she was going to pull off an upset. And Shontek was struggling, I think, a bit in the heat and the humidity. It was really humid today, like 75% humidity. And Niemeyer took advantage of it. But, yeah, her level just completely abandoned her after that. Um, she got 2-1 up in the second, and after that only won two more games as Shontek came roaring back. Um, Shontek would admit she didn't play her best. I think she'd admit she hasn't played her best. She doesn't particularly like New York. She doesn't seem to like the surface. Um, admittedly, that was the first set she dropped, but I don't think she's been completely immaculate, to be honest. I apologise for the yawn, but it is 2am here. She's going to play Jesper Gula in the quarterfinal. Jesper Gula is in really good form. We'll obviously have a home crowd behind her. Um... I think that's a really dangerous match for her. And I would not be surprised to see Pagula winning that when they play on what Wednesday as it will be. Um, interesting to note that Shontek's barely been on uh, barely been on Ash. She's played once on Ash. Top seed in the women's draw. Uh, she's been Louis Armstrong three times. I don't know what to make of that. I think it's a bit rubbish. I think they should feel duty-bound to put her on Ash at least once more, but this is probably a reason I don't run these tournaments. Okay, so that was today. Let's look back a bit with some hindsight on Sunday, where the main result, and, you know, not to put a dampener on Isla Tomlanovic's brilliant win over Ludmilla Samsonova, where she played an 18-minute, 31-point game at... 4-5, saving, I think, six set points in the first. And then it went to a tie-break that she won 10-8 and she won the second set 10-1. Uh, 6-1, sorry. And, and not also to brush past Coco Goff versus Zhang Shui, which I recommend you find the highlights on YouTube because it's basically just one big highlight reel. You can watch the whole match, to be honest. It was brilliant. But the reality is that the biggest story from that night was Nick Kyrgios beating Daniil Medvedev. And... I've written so many notes about this match, and I don't know if I've written them all in copy, but it was fascinating on so many levels. Kyrgios and Medvedev are both eccentrics, but in completely different ways. They're both people that have made the crowd boo them relentlessly, but in completely different ways. And they are also both brilliant entertainers in completely different ways. And I, I hope that this is a match we will see a lot of times at serious levels of Grand Slams. Because Nick Kyrgios, and let's not forget this is the same Nick Kyrgios who has a domestic assault charge that he has to answer for later this year, hanging over him. He's innocent until proven guilty, but it's important to mention that. But on a tennis court, he is one of the most electrifying people in the world. He is fabulous to watch. He has so many skills... He has now got to a point in his life where he's able to focus and even the outbursts that he have he has tend to be brief and at specific moments. He's able to produce some of his best tennis and that is brilliant to watch. 
And when you put him up against Daniil Medvedev, a guy who can do so many different things, the defending champion, the world number one, you, you're almost always going to get fireworks, I think. And there were so many fireworks on Sunday night in so many different ways. I mean, you know, Daniil Medvedev is a great, what I would call, shithouse. And Kyrgios out-shithoused him, quite frankly. I think he got in Medvedev's head. He frustrated him. You know, he de-rhythmed him as well, to an extent. The biggest thing for me, well, the two biggest things... A, the Kyrgios backhand, which I've always said is one of the most underrated shots in tennis, was brilliant. And he took on the Medvedev second serve with it. And Medvedev kept floating short second serves into his backhand. And Kyrgios kept whacking them down the line for a clean winner. And the other thing was that Medvedev just looked underpowered. You know, he he would put his all into a shot and Kyrgios would be up on the baseline, taking it on the rise and hitting a winner. And that's pretty worrying for Medvedev. You know, he did alter his baseline position and he got deeper and deeper as the match went on on return of serve. But if you're going to play like that, you also need to be able to hit through from a little bit deeper than others or find a way to get yourself further up the court again. And I think he just couldn't do that. As the match went on, the average rally length went down and down. I think it was 4.2 in the first set. I think in the fourth set it was something like 2.9. And Medvedev just ran out of answers, quite frankly. And Kyrgios didn't. Um, he gets in your head and you mustn't let him. That That's the reality of it. And he's going to go play Karen Hatchinoff, who I don't think he'll beat him, but I suppose he's got as much of a chance as anyone. It, it's to the point now where... If Kyrgios keeps it together for long enough, he wins. And he now looks like he can keep it together. So, who is going to beat him? You know, eh, entries on a postcard, please. Let me know, at LoveTennisPod on Twitter, who is going to stop Nick Kyrgios winning this US Open title? Because I'm not... I have a few ideas. I think Carlos Alcaraz can. I think Kasper Ruud might be able to. But I don't have many other answers beyond that. And and that's a pretty interesting state of affairs, in my opinion. Um, that's probably all I've got time for tonight. I hope you've enjoyed it. I will try and do some talking after the quarterfinals, which are starting tomorrow or today, since you're almost certainly listening to this on Tuesday. A fascinating US Open second week awaits. Sports Social Podcast Network.